Hi, I'm Rick Atkins, pastor here at CFCC. Welcome. We hope you enjoy this sermon and that God uses it to grow you in your relationship with Him. Before we get started, our goal is not to replace your investment in a local church with online content. We were made for community. We want to encourage you to engage in a local church with your gifts. See, when the people of God invest in the community of God, they experience the transformative power of God. And that is our hope and prayer for you. Again, thanks for joining us and we hope you enjoy the sermon. Church, you guys can have a seat. Good morning, Merry Christmas. It's good to see you guys. <laughs> Someone is excited about Christmas. Everybody else is still, still in shock <laughs> that it's already here. Uh, 2024 is around the corner. It, it, is, uh, it moves faster. And for those of you who are older and wiser and experienced is what we like to say, right? You know how fast it moves as we experience and get older and wiser, right? It keeps getting faster and faster. And so it is the beginning of Advent. We start focusing this morning morning on that. The word Advent means coming or to come to, and, and that's what we celebrate. That's exactly what we praise Christ for, for Jesus coming uh, to us. And uh, as we get started, and as we look at uh, and celebrate this Christmas season, His coming to us, we're going to look at some texts that really aren't normally associated with Christmas. And so if you have a Bible and you want to join me in Luke chapter 4, the gospel of Luke chapter 4, if you need a Bible, there are Bibles around you, Luke chapter 4. And, and, and I know, again, that doesn't sound like a Christmas text, and we are going to look at some texts that aren't necessarily connected, but as we go through it, hopefully you'll see the tie-in. As you're turning there, let me celebrate a few things. Let's celebrate Jingle Jam this past Friday. We had over 500 people here. What an incredible, incredible evening. Thank you uh, to all the, those that volunteered, that served, that helped, for all those that were a part of that. What a great, a great night. Thank you for all of you who are giving towards the Joy Project. We have a, another week of that to go, and so if you want to be a part of that and participate in the Joy Project, uh, you can certainly do that. There is still information in the kiosk, uh, the black kiosk in the back and out in the lobby. And Christmas Eve is coming, 9 a.m. and 4 p.m. is Christmas Eve service times, New Year's Eve at 10.30, so make note of that. You'll see that kind throughout uh, the building as well. All right, so for years, the people of God were looking for the promise of redemption, right? The long-awaited king who would come uh, to his people. He would save them from their sin. He would save them from hurt, oppression, despair. And that's what we celebrate. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. That's the reality of the truth of the Christmas season of Advent that he has indeed come. Now, we might know the story of Christmas. If you've been even within a rock-throwing distance of a church throughout your life, you've probably heard the story of Christmas of a, of a baby in a manger. We may know the macro reason of Jesus coming to save his people, to bring salvation. But what more, what more does that mean to us? What are the finer details of that good grace that has come to us? And that's what we're going to do in this series. We're going to explore four texts in Scripture that really answer more why Jesus came to earth. And hopefully in the process we'll realize that, that our deepest needs, the deepest needs of our lives, the deepest longings of our hearts that we experience here are only met in the one who came for us. So Luke chapter 4, verses 16 to 22. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read, verse 17. 
And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Verse 19, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Verse 21, and he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Verse 22, and all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? Have you ever, have you ever waited a long time for something? You might experience that this morning, waiting for this sermon and this service to be over. <laughs> and as you see it draw near, <laughs> as you see us move through the text, your anticipation rises, doesn't it? Maybe you remember the turning points as you moved from dating to engagement to marriage, the anticipation of graduation, a work promotion, or the purchase of a house, or the arrival of a child. The moment when it comes, it's full of joy, it's full of emotion, the emotion of the realization that it's here, that what had been anticipated, what you've been longing and looking for, is here. This is what those who hear Jesus' words in this text, those who would have been sitting around listening to him teach and read, should have been experiencing that joy, that emotion of it's here. See, God's promise of salvation has come. He promised a long time before Jesus stood and read from the scroll of Isaiah that this was going to happen, and it's come, and the people have been waiting thousands of years. And Jesus comes and he fulfills, in his words, the promise. And what I want to show you today is two truths, two truths that we can behold this Christmas season, truths that lead us to worship, truths that walk us home. And here's the first one. May we behold a powerful gospel this Christmas, a powerful gospel this Christmas. It's life-changing truth to behold. In verse 16, Jesus is in his hometown, right? He comes to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, as Luke records. And as was his custom, don't miss this, right? What did he do? What was his regular habit? He goes to the church. It's his custom. It was his regular habit. Don't miss that. That's not the sermon today, though. Typical worship service at the synagogue would look like uh, something similar to this, like a prayer read and then a reading from the law and the prophets. And and then on most occasions, there would be a sermon where the chief ruler would stand to read the word and then he would sit and then he would teach. Jesus comes as a visiting preacher, as a visiting rabbi. And we see him given the honor to read and teach in the synagogue. In his hometown, right? We see this, and and we know he's been doing this, as we see in verses 14 and 15, and I'll I'll just read that to you real quick. In, in, In the verses prior to our text, it says this, Luke records, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out throughout all the surrounding country. Verse 15, And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. So this isn't something that is just now, Jesus has been doing this, and so he gets the the occasion to do it in his hometown at his his church. In verse 17, it says, And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him, and he unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Now, Now, in some cases, when they would have church, the reading is fixed. 
Like this is what we're reading today. There was a liturgy, there was an order, there was a, there was a, a way that they would go about it. But here the person preaching that day, Jesus, gets to choose the text. And this is what he chooses. This is what happens here. He picks a text. It's intentional and it's special. From all he could have chosen to read out of Isaiah, he doesn't choose law or he doesn't choose a set of laws or an example of judgment or condemnation. He selects good news. He selects the gospel. I want, to, I want to read that to you again, verses 18 and 19. This is what Jesus read. He's quoting out of Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Amen. That's good news. This is Jesus, in his own words, declaring this good news to us. This is a powerful gospel. Everything we see Jesus proclaim here as he reads this, we see him do it through the rest of his ministry. And if you were to read through the rest of Luke, you would see that Luke records that in, in, in detail for us. This gospel, this, this is the summarization of the gospel good news of the ministry of Jesus Christ to us. Jesus came to us that are poor, both economically and spiritually. He came for us, the captive, both imprisoned physically and sinfully. He came for us, the blind, both physically and spiritually. He came for us, the oppressed that we face here on earth, that we face supernaturally by sin and the devil. He came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And when you hear those four different Categories. There's four different places that Jesus brings freedom, that he came to set the captives free. We see ourselves within this. We see that these are all encompassing the poor. And the word that Jesus used here, the word that's read here, the word that commentators look at for poor can cover poverty of any kind. But they place an emphasis on the, the, the poor in conscience, the spiritual poverty. Now, Jesus uses the same word for poor in the first beatitude. In, in Matthew 5, 3, he says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The word captives, when he talks about those that are captive, that he came to set them to proclaim liberty to the captives. The word captive technically means prisoner of war. The application here is spiritual bondage. The prison house of sin, as one commentator put it, captive to sin. Those who know need mercy. Sight to the blind was the other part of what he read. Sight to the blind. We, and, and we see Jesus explaining this to us as he, as he comes to Paul in Acts 26. And in Paul's conversion, when, when Jesus speaks to Paul about what, what Paul is going to do for Jesus in his ministry, we see this really more explained, this sight to the blind that Isaiah has in chapter 61 that Jesus read here. In Acts 26, 16 through 18, this is what Jesus said to him. He says, But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. Verse 17, Delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Verse 18, listen to this. To open their eyes. So that they may turn from what? Darkness to light. 
from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are what? Sanctified by their good works, sanctified by their giving, by their service, by their attendance, sanctified by their morality. No, sanctified by their faith in who? In themselves, in others, in their parents. No, in me. And Jesus is talking about himself. This was the sight to the blind. This, was the, this is what Jesus says. This is the gospel, the powerful gospel that Jesus brings to us. The reality to see our sin in his grace. Then the fourth one was the oppressed. And the root idea of the oppression is broken in pieces, shattered, crushed. Jesus comes to those squashed, if you will, by, by the circumstances that we experience and we go through in life. And when we're in those places, we can see no way out. We can see nothing forward. And we find ourselves living in that oppression. And Jesus says, I came to give freedom, to bring freedom to them. And lastly, he sums it up as he reads the last part of that quote. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. If you were to search the Old Testament, you would find it in the book of Leviticus chapter 25. It's called the year of jubilee. And in that year, the debts were canceled for people. Slaves were freed. Land is reunited and returned to owners. It was a clean slate for everyone. And it happened about every 50 years. And Jesus is reading this to the people in the synagogue, to those that are listening. To us, he's reading it. This is the powerful gospel. And I want you to know this and understand how intentional, how special this is. There is another part to verse 2 in Isaiah 61. There's an ending part. And it says, and it goes like this. After it says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, the next part says, and the day of vengeance of our God. But Jesus doesn't read that part. He stops at the year, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He stops and closes the scroll. He doesn't read the other part because now, right now, we're in that time of the Lord's favor. What's the Lord's favor? It's an opportunity for you and I to receive and respond to the invitation of salvation. But there's coming a day where there's coming a day where this scripture will be fulfilled in its fullest. That it won't stop short, that it will be fulfilled in its fullest. And a righteous judgment will come, but that is not today. Today is an opportunity for you, for I, for those who don't know Christ to respond to Jesus and his grace. That's why Jesus calls the year of the Lord's favor. Can you imagine this clean slate? I mean, all your debts, all, all your debts wiped out. All of them. I mean, all the chains that bind you removed, taken off, no more, absolutely clean. Yet Jesus has done more than that. I mean, we might pay off our, early, our earthly debts over time. We might do that. Surely we might do that. But Jesus has paid a debt we could never pay. We rebelled and he obeyed. And Jesus paid it in full. And we're going to reflect on that in just a little bit in communion. It's easy for me, I don't know about you, it's easy for me to read these verses, and I've, I've read them a lot over my life with Christ and my walk home. It's easy for me to read these verses and become so familiar with them that I'm not really in awe anymore of the gospel. I'm not really blown away anymore about what Jesus has done. That I'm not humbled and convicted and maybe you, you also 
experience those moments and those times where, where you just need to be powerfully reminded of how powerful the gospel Jesus Christ is to save a sinner, a wretch like me. May God restore, may he refresh the all this Christmas season for us. We never, ever get over that every time that we step out of bed, that he, he reminds us of just how much his grace is sufficient. And we find in this text and we find in the ministry of Jesus that the gospel addresses, again, the most profound needs of our souls, that we are depraved people. Paul says in Ephesians 2 verse 1 that we were dead in trespasses and sins, but Jesus has, bought, has brought good news to people who were dead. We see and know that we are captives. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Paul wrote in Romans 8, verse 7, he says it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot submit to God's law in Romans 8, 7. And so what we hear Paul saying to us, that there is no way in our fallen, sinful, broken condition that we could ever submit to the law of God. Try as we might, we're shackled in chains. We are captives. And so when Jesus stands before us and says, I've come to proclaim liberty to the captives, what he's saying is, I have the master key to let you free. We are blind. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. And Jesus comes and he dispels the darkness and he gives sight that we are oppressed, but he's delivered us from that oppression that we were debtors and he has paid the ultimate price, not, not with perishable things, Peter says, such as silver and gold, but with his very own blood in 1 Peter 1. And again, we will reflect on that in communion. I don't ever want to be numb to the power of the gospel. And as I see others around me, I don't want to ever be numb that the gospel can't save them like it saved me. I want it to humble me as I look around, as I look horizontally, that what God has done vertically with me and him is nothing short of miraculous. And as I see others around me, that he can do the same miracle in their life that he has done in mine. The power of the gospel. Paul said that the gospel is the power of God in Romans 1. The gospel, the gospel, Paul says, nothing else, nothing else does he say that about the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite preachers, ministers, authors, he said this. He says, others may preach the gospel better than I do, but none may preach a better gospel. There is no better or greater news in all the world than Jesus Christ shedding his blood for our Sin. He does not bring a law that leads to death. Rather, he brings a gospel. It's full of grace. It's full of mercy. It's full of forgiveness. It's full of freedom that brings life. It's a powerful gospel, and it's available to you today. Here's the second truth to behold, a powerful God. Not only do we see a powerful gospel, we see a powerful God. 
But when we read this text, it seems that maybe those in the audience misunderstood who Jesus is and the power he is proclaiming. Look back at our text, Luke 4, verses 20 to 22. And it says, And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And, all, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Verse 21, And he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? Verse 22 says, All the eyes were fixed on him. You've got you to remember, you, they've seen him grow up. They've heard all these things about him that he's doing in Galilee and in the, in the surrounding areas. And now here he is in front of them. And they, again, they've watched him. He's in the synagogue. He's in their church. And he's reading Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2. And then finishing off proclaiming, by the way, I'm the one. Imagine the audience. You see, for Jesus, this is a, a text of self-identification. And that's how we understand it as we study it through, through Luke giving it to us, that Jesus was self-identifying here. And you can feel the drama here if you understand, again, this is his hometown. These are people who saw him grow up. But this is also the Jewish people, God's people, who have been, who have been waiting, right? This is a 30-something-year-old man at this point, shows up to his hometown church. He reads uh, from this passage which had massive, huge significance for God's people because the passage spoke to them of the return from exile coming back to the land of Israel from Babylon and yet something is very wrong here in every Jewish heart what was not right well the kingdoms the old kingdoms of Judah and Israel were not reunited there was no king from David's kingly line on the throne there, there were polytheists pagan polytheists who were in charge of the country Right? There were Gentiles in charge of their land. And every Jewish person was again yearning for the day when everything would be put right. And so Jesus reads from the scroll and he reads the verses that would hit them the deepest. That would matter to them the most. And he reads the passage about everything being put right. Everything we just read is about everything being put right. And he sits down and everybody's looking at him. And what does he say? Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That's Jesus saying, listen, I am the man that God has sent to do this. And I will do this. I can set captives free. I can give sight to the blind. I can bring relief to the oppressed. I can bring help to the poor. Jesus is saying, I am the one that God has anointed. I am the anointed one. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm the Messiah. You've been waiting, and I've come here to do it. Luke is showing us that many of Jesus' contemporaries, those who were listening, failed to see his true identity as God. And throughout Luke's record of, of Christ's life, he's going to show us Jesus, fully God, fully man. That Jesus was not just an ordinary man, but rather he was God in the flesh, Emmanuel, God with us. And they missed it. One thing is true as you read this text. And there are other places where this is true as well. But as you read this text, you cannot be neutral on who Jesus claims to be. He does not leave that up for debate. He is either a liar as you read this, and he's not that anointed one, the Messiah, or he is. 
He doesn't leave it to debate. And before we're too quick to criticize or, or wonder, how could they not see God standing? How, do, how could they miss that? How could they not have understood this was Jesus, the Messiah? I want to show you someone else who was really close to this, too, who missed it. Or almost missed it. If you flip over just a couple of chapters to Luke chapter 7, you're going you're gonna to meet a guy named John the Baptist. And if you look there in chapter 7, you'll see that John the Baptist was, he was the forerunner of Jesus, and he finds himself in prison. He's been proclaiming the Messiah is coming, and now he's in prison, and he begins to wonder, was I right? Was I led astray? Was I wrong to place my faith in, in this man named Jesus? And look at what he says in Luke 17, verses 18 and 19. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, verse 19, calling two of the disciples to him, sent them to the Lord, Jesus, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? So John asked the question, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And they go back, and it says they go back to Jesus, verses 20 and 21. And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? In verse 21, and in that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. What did he do? He set them free. And on many who were blind, he did what? He gave them sight to see. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? And I love the answer that Jesus gives them to go back and tell John the Baptist, verses 22 and 23. And he answered them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind received their sight the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. The poor have good news preached to them. Verse 23, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. In other words, Jesus, as the, the words that Jesus spoke in the synagogue, they were, again, not mere words. He does these very things. Jesus speaks and he does. He upholds his promises. You could not define Jesus as all talk and no action. He was both talk and action, just as we need to follow as disciples today. He restores sight to those who are blind, hearing to those who are deaf. He cleanses the leper. He makes the lame to walk, and he raises dead people unto life. And what does that demonstrate? In the words of John the Baptist, there is no need to look for another. This is the one. This is the Lord. This is Emmanuel, God with us. This is the Messiah. Which answers the question, why is the gospel that Jesus proclaims in Luke 4, why is this gospel such good news to the poor? Why is it that it's able to liberate captives? Why is it that it's able to restore sight to the blind? Why is this gospel able to establish a year of the Lord's favor? Why is it in our contemporary context that this gospel is able to resurrect marriages? It's able to break addictions. It's able to heal the brokenhearted. Why is this gospel able to change lives? Why is it that this gospel is the one in which we can rely on, build our life upon, and rest our eternity on? It is because standing behind this gospel is the God of the gospel, Jesus Christ. 
That Jesus, he is the substance of the gospel. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the firstborn over all creation. He is the hope of glory. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the anointed one. He is the wonderful counselor. He is the everlasting Father, the mighty God, the Prince of Peace. This is now and forever our truth for worship and praise. This is what moves us forward through all things that we face and experience on earth. This is what sustains us in our loneliness and brokenness and hurt. This is what comforts us and strengthens us, that this is the God of the gospel. This is what we celebrate Christmas. This is what makes our hearts and our spirits soar our hands to rise into the air that the God in the flesh, that no mere man, no one but God himself could do what God has done. That he has looked upon our sinful condition that separates us, that he is, instead of consigning us to the everlasting punishment that we rightfully deserve, that I rightfully deserve, that I've earned, instead of doing that, God became flesh and he dwelt among us. He took my sin, he took your sin, he took our shame, took our guilt, he took it all upon him, took the very wrath of God the Father that was due to me upon himself, and he absorbed it. This is worth celebrating at Christmas, that he has done these things. There are wonders to behold. There is a powerful gospel. There is a powerful God that stands behind the gospel, Jesus Christ, and he came to set us free. May we experience that freedom this Christmas. And let's remember where that freedom came from. So if you want to pull out your little communion cup and pull out that top wafer, a little white wafer to represent Christ's broken body. What a, what a, a moment we have as we kick off this month and this, this time of the year to just pause and reflect That powerful gospel and the powerful God behind the gospel became broken on our behalf. So that you and I will never face the eternal brokenness that sin brings. That's what the wafer reminds us of, that Jesus is a symbol of his body. And, and this is for Christians if you're not a Christian in the, in the room this morning, I would invite you just to observe and watch. But for those who know Christ and those who have believed and trusted in Jesus as Messiah, as Lord, as Savior, surrendered, this is a moment of reflection as Jesus commands us to remember, to remember what I have done. Do not forget. And like I said earlier, sometimes I can read passages of Scripture and I can just kind of, I get it, but I don't, it doesn't, pause, it doesn't make me pause, it doesn't make me stop. I don't want that to be true for us. And especially when we come to times where we reflect on what he's done through the cross. Remember though, he's not on the cross anymore. He paid that in full. He gave up his body for us so that we can be saved and be home one day with him.
And so as we take this, let's, let's start this Advent season in a clean slate. Let's take a moment, let's confess our sins and start in a clean slate so that God may use us as vessels for his goodness and grace into the world around us so that he may be glorified. Father, as we take this, we confess our sins, Father. Have mercy. Forgive us for the places and the ways that we fall short. God, strengthen us. Give us wisdom. Show us your power to overcome. Help us to stand back up and keep walking. And God, we thank you for this moment where we look at this wafer and we're reminded of what Jesus has given for us. Let's take this together. If you want to go ahead and open up the bottom half of your little, your little cup there. And as you begin to see the juice, we're reminded again of that picture of the blood pouring out of our Savior. The precious blood pure blood Jesus was able to proclaim what he proclaimed that he can set us free because he knew what he was going to do and as we look at this we recognize he knew that his blood was going to be shed that he was the only one and even in the midst of knowing and what he would experience he still he still did it and every time I get to stand before you and share communion, I always want to say, you're loved. I think there's a lot of things in this world that, that try to take that away from you. There are a lot of voices and there are a lot of, a lot of things, the devil and our flesh. There are a lot of things that try to tell you that you are not loved, that you, you can't be loved. You're too damaged, you're too broken, and there is no one that could ever love you, could ever care for you. And I want to come against that with everything in me and say, you are loved. You have never lived an unloved day in your entire life, and you never will. God the Father sent his Son to show you tangibly that you are loved. And my hope and prayer is that, that we together will respond to that love with humility and with praise. And we will find comfort and strength there on those days. And you will hear Jesus' voice saying, you are loved. Father, thank you that we don't have to go through life feeling unloved. Feeling alone or deserted. We know that you have come. Jesus, your son, our Savior, has come. And he paid the price as he gave his life, as his blood was shed for us so we may be strengthened and comforted by his love this morning God help us to share and extend that love to others let's take this together Father we're great we're grateful we're grateful for the opportunity to be with you 
the opportunity to start this Christmas season free, free because of Jesus, because of him alone. We pray in his name. Amen.